This is Questions of Courage, a podcast from the youth section at the Goetheanum, hosted by Nathaniel Williams. Welcome to Questions of Courage. About 12 years ago, um, in the United States, there was an event called Occupy Wall Street. And many people actually went to Wall Street, which is kind of the heart of the financial uh, networks of the whole world, and took up a kind of live-in protest at the very base of uh, Wall Street. And um, this was followed and also led to protests in many different places and similar actions in many different places around the world. And it is a picture, many young people involved, is a picture of a kind of deep feeling of dissatisfaction with the way that we deal with markets, with finances, with doing business in the world and feeling like it needs to be occupied by the people. Um, What you might think of Occupy Wall Street, um, I'm just introducing it as a picture of a concern that a lot of young people are carrying. When they imagine the future, one of the challenges I think that a lot of people have is how can we think of our economic production, of the way we distribute things and the way that we consume things and buy things and consume them. How can we imagine this in a way that feels like it can be, one, characterized as a a kind of just system, a just economic culture or practice, but also um, one that is not going to continue to lead to like um, economic degradation and just extractive um, consumption of a very limited uh, or a limited uh, set of natural resources. And today I'd like to talk about that because I'd like to characterize a few really inspiring and really hopeful ideas related to thinking about economics in the future that were first articulated by Rudolf Steiner and which are often referred to as associative economics. But I don't want to just launch into summarizing and characterizing those. Instead, I'd like to start by tying them into a really interesting book that was written by Michael Sandel, one of the most well-named political theorists in the United States. And he wrote a book not long ago called What Money Can't Buy. In this book, he's really concerned with when we make things into marketable commodities, uh, things that you can buy and sell, and the only thing that determines whether or not you you can acquire it is whether or not you have the money. Um, He's concerned about the expansion of this way of distributing and relating, distributing rights and goods and, and living together. And he characterizes two really specific concerns. And one is how that way of living could increase inequality. And you got to remember, he's writing from a liberal democratic, relatively liberal democratic society. And this is a concern that he, he really carries and that has a long history in the United States that in some ways an equality of condition as it's sometimes called or kind of equality and we're talking about here now some economic equality not radical inequality is really important for a democratic society and the second concern that he has besides 
the effect that it can have on inequality is that it takes things that have values that are not market values, that we don't value like just a good that we can buy and sell, but it has some kind of deeper meaning to it. And it can take that meaning away. He calls it kind of crowding out other values. He also says that it can have a kind of corrupting influence on other values. And he gives so many examples. And, you know, the point of his book is actually to explore this and to try to talk about what should be on the market and what shouldn't be on the market. This is his summary of the purpose of the book from the beginning. Quote, of course, people disagree about what values are worth caring about and why. So to decide what money should and should not be able to buy, we have to decide what values should govern the various domains of social and civic life. How to think this through is the subject of this book. So Michael Sandel gives so many anecdotal stories. Some of them are from scholarly research projects and some of them are anecdotal but well known in the United States. And just to like put a little bit of like uh, flesh on these bones, these ideas that he's bringing, like he points out, you know, we definitely don't believe that it's right that someone should be able to buy votes. That's not just an open common practice that we accept. The very idea of democracy is connected to it not being tied to um, how much money you have and that everyone would have in, on some level uh, a vote in an issue and have a say and that there'd be certain decisions that be determined by that kind of a process. Another example that he gives is related to um, entry requirements at universities, for instance, and that um, the value, for instance, of studying in a certain context is connected to the fact that you can't just get in through paying a certain amount of money. That when you can get into a university because you're wealthy and not because you can actually contribute to developing a very intense learning process, that the value of the diploma from that university is corrupted. That everything is corrupted around the idea. He brings a lot of examples like that, which point towards his main concern, which is that turning things into marketable com commodities can have a corrupting effect and also kind of crowd out other ways of thinking about and valuing things. So to give you some like really just a few examples from this book, um, one of his uh, points is that how we frame something when we talk about taking up a project together or working together really can determine whether or not it comes to anything. And he gives some really colorful examples. And one of the examples that he gives um, is from 1993, and it happened actually in Switzerland. And it was in a town called Wolfenschießen. The population is about 2,100 people. And um, there was a study in Switzerland of where to build a, um, a nuclear waste facility. And uh, it turned out that given various considerations in the small country related to safety, etc., that the site near this town um, would be the most ideal. 
And uh, they brought it to the population of the town and they asked if they would accept the construction of this site. Of course, it has a long democratic history, Switzerland, one of the longest in the world. And the vote to accept the nuclear facility was 51%. 51% of the population voted to accept the building of this facility to kind of as a civic duty, um, recognizing that there was a whole study behind it, that it was a need for uh, Switzerland to have such a facility, 51% accepted this kind of civic responsibility. There was a second vote where besides accepting the facility uh, voluntarily, it was added that each resident of the town would be given an $8,700 annual payment. Um, so every year they would get $8,700 if they would accept this facility. And they voted on that movement as well, or that motion as well, excuse me. And the vote went remarkably down, down to 25%. 25% said that they would then accept the facility. And here you have an example of that contradicts the way a lot of economists are taught to think, which is that, um, you know, the more... Uh, incentives that a person will have for their self-interest, uh, the more that they will be willing to, um, you know, do something for someone else. And we already had 51% that were willing to take this on as a civic duty. What's remarkable is it didn't stay the same. And it didn't go up. Instead, it went down. Um, arguably, from a purely self-interested perspective, uh, you know, the people would have been getting more because they were going to accept it anyway, and why not also take the money? But there was something in them that I think obviously people intuitively recognize as a feeling of solidarity and civic virtue that they felt like this was a corrupt idea that they would actually have some kind of monetary interest in a decision like this. Now, that's a really interesting story because it kind of points towards the fact sometimes you have you know, more incentives from an economic financial perspective, and it makes the supply go down, not up, um, which is counterintuitive from an economic perspective. A second example he gives on exactly this point is related to some research that um, someone did related to philanthropy or giving or working, helping people with no reimbursement or financial incentive. And this involved calling a group of lawyers uh, and asking them if they would offer um, discounted services for elderly people that need legal services in the United States. This was the uh, AARP. And um, the, the legal firm refused to you know, offer discounted services for elderly. However, they came back and they said, well, we understand that you refuse to offer discounted services for the elderly. Why don't you offer free services for the elderly? And on this note, there was an agreement and they agreed to offer free services. And again, okay, I'm not talking about the exact number of services, etc., but it points towards something counterintuitive where if you take something out of a market framing, everything changes around it. And this points towards something that's become more and more evident. And it's something that Joseph Stieglitz, who's another well-known economist in um, English-speaking uh, political theory, 
has long pointed out, which is in surveys and experiments and research where we're trying to decide if people really act out of self-interest all the time, it's not clear. And there's only one group that you can predict will always act in their own self-interest. And for instance, the experiments that have been designed to try to understand this. And that group happens to have one thing in common. They're all trained economists. So they are people who have studied and have really worked with ideas that economic life should be about self-interest. But generally speaking, this is not the way that people make economic decisions. So Michael Sandel, he points out how we frame things, how we talk about things. It really matters in whether or not they become possible or not. And that actually our resources of solidarity, of enthusiasm to be helpful, to work together, can be diminished if we always talk about them in market terms. And this is one of his main points with his book, which is that economists typically think that a kind of willingness for cooperation, also for kinds of altruism and helping one another, paying more, volunteering, these resources are limited. And so we should not try to uh, work with them in economic theory and policy. And they should be you know, left for family life and the limited areas where altruism of human nature can actually um, spread out. And Michael Sandel, he just challenges this very idea that our ability for cooperation is severely limited as the economist suggests. He puts it more like, let's think about it like a muscle. And if we build up discourse in such a way where we get to exercise this muscle, it can also get stronger. And we can make more sacrifices for the common good, and we can find more ways um, to work in solidarity with one another. So in his words, quote, to those not steeped in economics, this way of thinking about the generous virtue is strange, even far-fetched. It ignores the possibility that our capacity for love and benevolence is not depleted with use, but enlarged with practice. So Michael Sandel, in the end, he comes up with this challenge to talk more about where do we want markets to really be active and where do we want the limits um, of markets to be. And he suggests that the capacity for solidarity and even love, generosity, be considered like something that can be exercised like a muscle and can have much more influence in economic life or let's just say societal life as we assume right now. Yes, now this is, I'm gonna like, um, now that was a summary of Michael Sandel and I really encourage everyone to read that book who's interested in these kinds of questions because it's so full of good stories and I've just spoken about a few and um, when we then turn to uh, associative economics and we look at Rudolf Steiner, um, I'm going to bring one of the funniest quotes that I know from him, which goes something to the effect of, uh, in an economics course that he gave, he, speaking to economic students, he said, yeah, you know, if my mother had four tires and a drive shaft, she'd be a car. And 
Um, and the, the, the context of this quote is he was criticizing kind of a moralistic um, approach to economics where we say if everyone just, um, you know, acted morally in, in economic life, then we wouldn't have any of the corruption and the greed and the inequality that can, uh, we can see. And so he's kind of like challenging a basic moral argument. Now, I don't want to say, of course, that Michael Sandel is guilty of this. He has so many examples of, um, you know, really intriguing examples that point towards a more nuanced understanding. But at the same time, I'd like to honor one of the most interesting things about Rudolf Steiner's Associative Economics, which is that he's mostly known as, um, um, for his spiritual writings and spiritual work, though he's had a huge influence, actually, in social and economic life that's not recognized so much, especially outside of Middle Europe. One of his great challenges uh, for economics was he felt like the challenge was how can we kind of curate and create our markets and our economic exchanges and um, that's production, how we get things around and distribute them and also consumption in a way that the kind of value judgments that are not just egotistical can be emergent in the process itself, that they're not superimposed through a kind of moral framework or the government, even though he did believe that the market should be regulated by democratic law. But he did want to see in economic life itself, obviously you have egotism, but how could you arrange things in such a way that egotism could have a kind of complementary movement that was intrinsic in just being in economic practice? And I think it's a wonderful challenge, whether or not you think that it's a possible reality or not. Okay, uh, that remains to be seen. But one thing I want to point out here is that Rudolf Steiner's Associative Economics is really only focused on answering Sandel's query from one perspective. Okay, uh, Steiner also did not believe that votes should be bought and sold. He did not believe, you know, that... Um, the value of a cultural um, enterprise should be judged based on selling and buying, as we talked about with uh, the admissions into um, learning settings where there's limited possibility, um, for instance. But he kind of focused his economic theory on really looking at economic processes. So one of the things that he really has in common with Michael Sandel is that he suggested that when we start an enterprise or we start a business, it really makes a difference if we start it and we think about it as being for the common good and not just being about accumulating private and personal fortune and wealth. And um, so this is like a really basic place where I think there's a convergence um, in some of the most recent, you know, economic and political theoretical research and Rudolf Steiner's Associative Economics, it matters what you think. If you think that you are starting a cooperative enterprise, which let's just say is a business, that's one way of talking about business, working together with other people to produce goods to serve other needs of other people, and you, you think that it's just a good thing to do, 
you're in a very different situation than someone who is starting a business, not really caring about even the commodity that they're creating or the service, and only interested in what the income state statement says at the end of the day. And he says, this is like one of the most basic changes needed in economic life. And he's talking about global economic um, orientation. Already 100 years ago, he said, in the future, it's just going to be a global economy. Um, no more national economies. Everything's going to be globalized value chain production. And he, um, so this is like he says, you know, we need to think about enterprises as oriented towards the satisfaction of real needs and that be the purpose. <clears throat> and on this level, I'd just like to name a couple things that are interesting to look at. What could this look like? This is really not totally a theoretical question anymore because we have people who are consciously working together in exactly this direction. I mean, if you look, for instance, at the, the B Lab or B Corp movement and benefit corporations, you see a group of um, entrepreneurs and uh, business leaders who have not only suggested this be done, but they're doing it. And they're lobbying to create legislation in all the states of the United States that allows for a way of incorporating where even in the bylaws, what they call triple bottom line bookkeeping, which is where you don't only work for financial profit, which is great, you know, because it really means you're being efficient somehow um, in the best case scenario. You're not being wasteful or you're not in an unsustainable situation. Um, but the second thing that they say, you need to have bookkeeping that your, 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 the presence of your enterprise is providing a kind of social um, profit that it's socially enriching the lives of the workers, the customers, of other people possibly, that there's an audit related to this. And thirdly, that there be an ecological um, uh, profit and loss statement where you see that the existence of your enterprise is actually kind of leading towards a sustainable, not only sustainable, but even a profitable impact on the natural world where all of economic life draws its natural resources. So in the benefit corporation movement, B-Lab, we have this, you know, we also can see it in such a remarkable institution like the ethical bank in Germany, GLS Bank, which, um, you know, in the United States, um, our finance our finance tools and finance products are often looked at as ways that we can use money to make money. Um, and banking might be one of those really crucial areas to try to think this through. And in GLS Bank, for instance, in Germany, not only has it been thought through, but in really remarkable ways implemented. The largest ethical bank in Germany but also certainly um, one of the most influential in the way that they're thinking. Banking as a not-for-profit community enterprise. And we're talking about billions, billions of dollars in investments. And all of the investments of the bank are transparent and they're directed towards investments that, again, are for the common good. Um, and that can be, people can really, communities can really stand behind. And so I uh, just want to point this out. GLS has its roots actually in um, thoughts from Rudolf Steiner's economics course and a group of people that were very dedicated to working with those and have had uh, a great influence in this way. Um, 
Okay, so those are two examples of like shifting the way that you think and so that it's for the common good. And that already changes a huge amount about economic life, namely that you're working more out of an intrinsic motivation in Michael Sandel's language of the book, What Money Can't Buy, and not just for the incentive of money. There's another one that's really interesting and in that um, also highlights a really important part of Rudolf Steiner's economic theory. And that is the CSA movement in the United States, but it's all over the world. We're talking about countless um, uh, farms and gardens. Uh, CSA stands for Community Supported Agriculture. And uh, one of the books you can look at if you would like to learn more about this is um, by Chagru Gro, Farms of Tomorrow. And um, at least one of the groups of people that were really at the the, the kind of spearhead or the point of the spear of this movement were also working with Rudolf Steiner's ideas about associative economics. And what they did is they brought together uh, farmers and consumers. Often the distributors were not present, though in some situations there were also there are also distributors involved. Um, and the farmer came and said, look, um, I am ready to create the conditions so that all of this healthy food can potentially grow. Now, it could be that there's a flood. It could be that there's a blight or a hard freeze that kills some of the, the you know, young plants during the season. But I can do what I can to create this kind of good food, local food from our area, and take care of the land while I'm doing it. And this is the budget for that. And it could probably feed about this many families. And then making a call for that many consumers or that many families to come together. And then, you know, dividing, so to say, the overall price uh, of that uh, enterprise that everyone would contribute to that. Now, they're not buying a head of lettuce. They're not buying tomato. They're buying actually uh, the whole thing. And if there's not so much um, food, there's solidarity because the farmer did what they did and we are kind of subject to conditions of nature no matter what. And um, sometimes the crop will be less, sometimes more. And there's kind of a feeling of solidarity there. Now, what does this illustrate? Well, one, it's important to look just how widespread and influential these ideas have been on a practical level for many, many farmers and communities. But also, it points towards a particular way of doing business that Steiner thought was really important and which sometimes is overlooked because it's not only about setting up enterprises for the common good or as a kind of purpose-driven um, you know, social enterprise. It's also about doing business in such a way that you don't only look at numbers and profit and loss statements. That instead, you actually talk about the concrete needs of each situation, production situation. And you say, you know, look, we're farming on the side of a mountain here. This is really, really difficult. That's why the costs are higher, etc. But because of that, you know, we have all of these other benefits, including cutting down on pollution from trucking things in, what have you. That there's like actually a, a somewhat of a descriptive process of how the price is found or what the expenses are, let's say rather. And that when people talk in this way, when they talk in a pictorial way, they can come to something which is what you could say is a true price 
which allows for the enterprise to go forward and it's not determined by the cheapest price on the market. Instead, there's like a recognition of general conditions and some people might choose to consume less voluntarily. Some people might pay more at the same time. And also people in the business might work, um, you know, with an unbelievable amount of dedication because of this connection, just as an example. Is connected to intrinsic motivation, of course, in this case. Okay, this is kind of some idealistic pictures, but not totally idealistic because it actually shows itself as possible. And Steiner called this way of working together in pictorial kind of associative way where you're talking about really concretely the ways that you produce things, distribute things, and consume them. This was associative way of working together uh, with pictures. And it made a difference on what kind of price agreements you could come to. So it's not only about having an enterprise that has a common good, but also about really talking about the conditions uh, on the earth of our businesses and markets and letting that lead our way to a price. So... Um, Lastly, there's really a, a, probably this is one of the most interesting things to, to introduce to the frame of Michael Sandel's question. Because Michael Sandel asks, um, how can we have a discourse where we decide what belongs and doesn't belong on the market? And there's a lot of things that, of course, we could talk about there, including from votes um, to, you know, all manner of things. Entrance to universities was the other example I've mentioned. But Steiner, kind of refraining from all that, he says there are actually already three things in um, that have been commodified that if you look closely, they shouldn't be. So again, he's limiting himself to an economic um, life, and he's saying there are three things that actually are we're treating like commodities, but that aren't commodities. And in an article, um, he writes about commodity nature, or what we call commodification. Again, this word that uh, can be somewhat um, unclear. And here is how he characterizes it. Now, we got to remember he talked in German, um, but uh, in the English translation, quote, Now it is precisely insofar as they can be bought and sold for sums of capital in which their sp specific nature cannot find expression, that economic values become commodities. This is a very, sounds like a very complicated sentence, but it's what he's, this sentence basically means is that when you can take something and you can buy it and you can sell it as a kind of representation of value that's disconnected from its other meanings and context, then it can be seen as a commodity. So it's kind of a, a disconnecting it from other ways of understanding, um, you know, how it's placed in the community's life, um, what meaning it might have other than a value, an economic value. This is something that he calls commodification. That's how he characterizes commodification. The next sentence after that, he writes, their commodity nature is suited, however, only to those goods or values meant for immediate human consumption. For the valuation of these 
we have an immediate standard in our physical and spiritual needs. So here he like makes a claim. And this is a claim very interesting. Like Michael Sandel, for instance, he asks, okay, we need to have a public discourse about what belongs in the market and what should not be in the market. What should be exchange, exchangeable as a kind of value uh, that could be represented by money and whatnot. And Steiner just says, okay, we should look at something as a commodity only if it can fulfill the immediate physical or spiritual needs of human beings. That is the standard of deciding whether or not it's a commodity for him, he suggests. And I'm like, okay, what does that mean? Well, he goes on to suggest there are three things that do not meet this standard that we currently treat as such. And one is land. Um, the other is capital. And the third one is labor. And I'm just going to touch on each one of these um, in conclusion here. And um, pretty much he says, look, right now we treat land as something that can be bought and sold. But land itself is not something that can be consumed. It's not something that can meet an immediate need of a human being. It should not be treated like a commodity, therefore. Instead, access to land should be um, more of a rights question. And here, for instance, he indicates uh, land rights, uh, I'm sorry, land trusts and um, various ways, uh, easements as well, where you can take the decision of the use of land out of the market and then make it more a question of a rights question. But not only land, he also refers to capital. And with capital, we think about large pools of money, which he did believe that that should not be considered a commodity. But we can also think about a very illustrative example, which is when you have, for instance, a factory. If you own a factory personally, um, is it a commodity? Should it be something that you can buy and sell? Uh, well, we definitely operate like that for the most part right now. But Steiner's contribution to this discussion was, look, um, a piece of capital like a, a, a factory and all of the machinery that goes into producing commodities is itself not a commodity. It is not a commodity. Instead, it should be seen as something which is not to be used based on who has money and who not, but based on who can, for instance, make it fruitful in its um, operation for society in general. And here we see a kind of connection with this doing business for the common good, you know. And if you want to look particularly more into this direction, I would encourage you to look up Armin Steuernagel and his, um, his work with purpose. And there's also a TEDx talk that he gave on particularly this subject. And lastly, he points out that labor and the labor market is something which doesn't actually belong in the marketplace at all. And these are pretty radical thoughts, but they're really interesting thoughts um, because they give a kind of criteria for trying to talk about what money can't buy, or the, you know, which is the title of Michael Sandel's book, but they do so in such a way that the judgments kind of come out of economic life itself. And they're not like a moral um, scheme that we all have to agree on, but something that we can even develop 
and see it working as part of the economic process, given some changes, like establishing businesses for the common good and not for simply accruing fortune, wealth, and economic profit for a private group. Two, doing business in such a way that as much as possible, our marketplaces reveal the conditions of production, of labor, of distribution that we're participating in when we're coming up with prices and what we want to pay for and how much we want to sell, for instance, how much we want to sell a product for. Um, that is kind of associative economics. But thirdly, that we would actually recognize that one way to determine what is a commodity is something that can meet immediate needs of a person um, physically and spiritually, which is a little more elusive, the spiritually part. Um, and that those would be commodities, but for instance, three really major areas where economic life currently or financial tools and investments are at play that from this perspective don't belong on the market are land, labor, and capital. And I hope that this small introduction and related to Michael Sandel can point towards something intriguing about associative economics. And if you'd like to look more into it, um, I, I highly encourage it. And um, particularly institutions like GLS Bank, but also Purpose, uh, Armin Steuernagel's company. Um, and there are many more if you start going uh, in this direction that you can look at. And um, that is something I hope that you might do. Um, because obviously I, I feel really excited about these ideas and their potential for the good in the future. This is a project which is a collaboration with the Goethe Annam communications team and Goethe Annam TV and the weekly. And um, it's just offered freely. Uh, there's low production costs. But um, I also want to invite contributions to support youth work and the work of the youth section. Uh, we definitely need it. The Goethe Annam is not uh, funded by some big endowment, doesn't receive state subsidies, nor does it receive you know, huge amounts of money from businesses, though there are, of course, business uh, people and many individuals who give to support the Goethe Annam and foundations. But I just want to say the support is truly needed. And um, if you'd like to support young people to be involved in conversations and programs um, at the youth section in the Goethe Annam, I hope you'll consider making a contribution. Um, thank you.